0: John 14, beginning at verse 27. This is God's holy word as Jesus spoke to his 11 remaining disciples the night before his death. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. Imagine that yourself an international aid worker somewhere along the border of Hungary, watching thousands of refugees from the Middle East, primarily Syria, arrive at that border and you are wishing that you could do more for them than maybe hand out some food packets or blankets or things that other countries have provided. Maybe you could imagine yourself calling out to some of them, peace be with you as you go. Well, I can also imagine perhaps an angry young father coming up and getting in my face, if that's what I was saying, peace be with you. And he might say to me, what in the world do you mean, American? Peace. Do you realize we've run from our homeland where two warring parties are equally happy to kill us and have us eliminated? Do you realize we've crossed the Aegean Sea in small boats and seen children and loved ones drown? Do you realize we've walked scores of miles on foot with little provisions and almost no protection as refugees? And now we arrive at the entry point to Europe where we hope to find freedom and settlement and we find razor wire. My wife is desperate, my children are hungry, and you say, peace be with you. I suppose we can imagine a lot of human situations in which individuals might greet the words of Jesus in John 14, 27, my own peace I give you, where they might greet those words with disdain because they'd be asking themselves, where's the peace? And based on their Difficulties, their circumstances, millions are skeptical about ever experiencing a life touched by lasting satisfaction and peace and wholeness before God. All they seem to know is strife and chaos and difficulty. And they would say, Why, that peace you're talking about is a very scarce commodity. I read this in relation to the international struggle for peace. The historian Will Durant wrote books about the big picture of human history, books of philosophy and history. And Will Durant, I, don't, I can't verify his figures, but this is what he gave. He said that in the last 5,000 years of global history, there have been more than 8,000 known peace treaties that have been violated or crushed And 14,000 wars have been fought with an estimated 4 billion casualties. How's that for human peace? And besides the international sphere and the military sphere and the governmental sphere, people seek peace and quiet in their normal lives. They want to come home after fighting traffic and trying to satisfy company goals and and maybe a boss who gives them a hard time and… Competition or difficult students at their school, or whatever it is, and they just want to close their front door and have some peace and quiet and not have to hear about problems. In scripture, the Hebrew word shalom is used a lot, more than 250 times. And it's not a meaningless word, it's a a word rich with meaning. Shalom or peace is a greeting, it's a word that speaks blessing. It's a word that speaks about a spiritual ideal. And it's an ideal that isn't simply the absence of conflict. It actually describes something positive. Harmony, well-being, fulfillment, being at rest in the presence of God. And biblical peace doesn't depend on enjoying calm, nice, pleasant circumstances. As a matter of fact, it is something that is often in its most magnificent form when the circumstances are at the worst, when a disciple is caught in a prison cell, or when the Son of God is on a cross. There's one source of true peace, and we examine it here in John 14:27, as it is described by the only person in history who has the power and ability to convey it to others. Peace given by Jesus Christ is like a diamond with many facets. And so first of all, I want to speak about the nature and source of true peace. Where does it come from and what is it like? It's easy for us to think that peace describes mostly a feeling or an emotion. And if that is so, and we say, well, what I want is a peaceful life or a peaceful evening at least, then we're saying that peace probably depends more on your personality, your temperament, your good health, your economic stability, or something like that. And it's going to be there sometimes and not be there other times. It's very subjective. It's going to come and go. It'll be like a pleasant daydream that that one hour you'll say, oh, I'm, I'm so peaceful, and then you'll get a phone call, and wham, your life is thrown into turmoil. Well, we're not dealing with peace here that is a feeling or an emotion. The peace of God in the New Testament, in all of the Scripture, the shalom of God, describes your standing with God first and foremost. It has to be peace with God before it is with anyone else in your life. And that peace with God can be and may be by the power of God in Christ and the gospel, an objective reality, a fact well-founded in your life based on a change of status between yourself and God, based on an unbreakable treaty signed in the blood of Christ. Now, we have to go back to Genesis to very briefly be reminded what I hope every Christian knows. I hope this isn't something that's entirely new to most people. But go back to Genesis 3 and discover that the real beginning of no peace for us in the Bible is the fact that we declared war on God. And humanity has been basically at war with God since Genesis 3, since our first ancestor decided to rebel Decided to draw the sword against God. We have drawn it too all our lives. Now, I know some people hear this and they say, oh, wait a minute. You're, you're exaggerating. I'm not angry with God. I don't curse God. I, I actually kind of ambivalent about God. I can take or leave him, but don't, don't accuse me of things I'm not guilty of, people would say. And yet the Bible says whether it is by your quiet, desperate search to shape the world by your own standards, your own pride, your own demands, or open atheistic conflict, one way or another, you don't come into this world at peace with God. And in fact, the Bible says those who are not at peace with him are his enemies. Romans 3 says things like nobody's righteous, not one. Nobody seeks God. No one is or all have turned aside and become worthless, things like that, all of us. Here on the same page in my Bible in the next chapter, John fifteen eighteen, actually labels, and this is Jesus labeling the world, that is, mankind in general apart from him, as people who hate God and hate his people and are at war with them as well as God. The declaration of Scripture, we could go down many, many verses that I don't have time for today, is simply to say that if nothing changes, we have a deeply rooted antagonism to a holy God. We are unholy. We are disobedient. We are lawbreakers. All kinds of things the Bible calls us. and We don't like being called those things. But Scripture says if nothing happens to change this situation we who are called God's enemies must inevitably face His wrath. And we can expect only exclusion from His final favor and eternal punishment. Isaiah 48, 22 might be a a summary text that says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked, the ungodly, the one who has not come to peace with God. So the first requirement for any of us to know the peace of God is to be reconciled to God. Well, how does that happen? Tell me what I must do. There must be ten steps I can go through and, and get this taken care of. Well, the Scripture says, unfortunately, because we're the antagonists and God is the one wounded by our rebellion, if there's going to be a treaty, he must initiate it. But the wonderful good news of the gospel is he did initiate it he has done this. You know, we always talk about war and we say somebody is waging war. I don't think we very often say somebody is waging peace. But that's what God did in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to wage peace, to form and create peace where there was none. The wonderful verse of Colossians 1.20 says of Christ, that God was pleased to reconcile all things through Jesus, His Son, making peace or waging peace by the blood of His cross. Now, that's a revolutionary act, you know. If you say uh, throughout human history, if you're a historian and you go back anytime you want to say, I'm going to kind of go back and study bloodshed in the history of mankind. Well, what are you studying? War. War. If a human being's blood is is being shed by sword or bomb or bullet or club or whatever, you're talking about an act of war, whether individual or, or involving nations. Isn't it amazing? Here's one and one only example in all of history where blood was shed in a deliberate way and it was not an act of war. The blood of Christ was shed as the great act of peace. Ephesians 2 has Paul talking to Jews and Gentiles, and he's indicting both of them because they don't see eye to eye. They don't get along. And he says, even though, of course, God's truth originally came to the Jew and and then to the Gentile, he said, "You're, you're on an equal footing as far as being at enmity with God and with each other. And then Ephesians 2 says this, Christ himself is our peace. He broke the dividing wall of hostility, reconciling Jew and Gentile to God. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He killed the war in order to make peace. And so Romans 5.1 gives that famous summary. Therefore, since we, believers in Christ, have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is obtainable, but that way only and by Christ only. It's not something we do. It's not in our power to initiate it, left to ourselves. We would be boxing with God and using God for a punching bag all of our days. And there are plenty of people who do exactly that every single day. But we can receive the gift of a treaty of peace that God has initiated in the blood of His Son on the cross when He died for us and reconciled our rebellion against God. And so Jesus in our text can call this my own peace, not only because He was the one that actually initiated it there as dying in our place, but it was also the peace that He had in His earthly life. You ever marvel over Jesus as you follow Him through the gospel and you say, How in the world could he ever stay so composed, so calm, so focused, so serene when people are beating on him and insulting him and criticizing him and all the things he had to go through, even his own friends not understanding him? Well, Jesus had that wonderful peace because he was at one with his Father. He had it within himself before he ever enacted it on the cross. And you think of the possible gifts Jesus might have designed to give to his disciples in history. You know, he's God. He could probably have arranged. I think it seems a little fantastic. But you could say, well, maybe Jesus would give every Christian disciple in the rest of history a gift, a million dollars. A million dollars for each and every one of you so that you could have financial security. Wouldn't that be great? Or maybe he'd arrange to give you perfect bodily health. You'd never have anything wrong, no serious illness, no cancer, and no disablements of any kind, and then at some point when you'd live to near 100, you'd just peacefully die in your bed. Wouldn't that be a wonderful gift? All the hospitals would be out of business. But Jesus knew that a million dollars or 95 years of perfect health were not the best gifts he could give. He wanted to give the same peace that he had throughout this life, peace with God the Father and peace that defied any circumstance. Hebrews 12 says Jesus endured the cross despising its shame. That was his wonderful peace at work. Walking right towards the cross, knowing what it was, knowing all that it meant spiritually as well as physically, he simply calmly undertook it There's a place in the gospel where it says he set his face like a flint to do it. I've been interested in a little series of car ads that's been on TV now. I'm sure you've probably seen them if you watch TV very much. It's for Buick cars. And the policy that Buick has now that you can apparently test drive a car for 24 hours before you sign, take it home. You know, it shows the man test washing his car. And his wife says, I want to take a test shopping and try it out. See how it works. Well, Jesus took the peace of God and test drove it throughout the years of his public ministry. He demonstrated how it works, what it looks like. And then he can give that same peace. How can he do that? You say, is it some mystical thing? Does he wave a wand over us? No, we learned last time how he does that. Because by the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself is present with his people, in his people. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And that Spirit brings the gift of peace. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit if you want to go in that direction and study that in the New Testament. Well, quickly with a second point. Verse 27 teaches us then next that this supernatural peace of Christ is absolutely 100% unlike any kind of worldly peace. Anytime human beings say we're going to create peace, we're going to create detente, it isn't done the way God does it. Think of this pretty current example. America wants to have peace with the country of Iran Over there, possible development, near development of nuclear arms. Oh, so we've got the solution for you, folks. Congress is about to vote on it. Here it is. Here's the way to make peace with a country that has declared that Israel must be wiped off the map, that hates Americans and hates our policies and hates who and what we are. Here it is. Here's the plan. This enemy is sworn to inspect their own nuclear plants to make sure they're not making a bomb. And in case that's not good enough, every once in a while, American inspectors will be allowed to come, provided they give three months or three weeks advance notice. But then they'll only be allowed to come to certain plants because some will be off limits. And by this means, we'll have peace. Won't it be wonderful? Nirvana on earth. Well, of course, it's a peace that's bound to fail with an enemy that is bound to want to destroy us and get around that agreement in every possible way worldly peace is is simply trying to say at least for the next 5 minutes or maybe 5 years at the best we won't have any war it's the absence of hostility it never works not for very long i give you the name of a man you won't recognize at first but unless you're an art historian but the name is edward hicks Edward Hicks was a Quaker in the early days of this country who created a series of paintings that you know the paintings even if you don't know the man. His paintings were entitled The Peaceable Kingdom. It wasn't just one… Maybe you think it's one painting. It isn't. He did at least 62 of them. This was his… sort of his life fascination was painting The Peaceable Kingdom, which was a Depiction of the prophecy in Isaiah 11 of the day when the lion would lay down with the lamb and so on and pointing to the eternal kingdom that God would bring. Edward Hicks was fascinated with that and you've, I think many of you can see in your mind's eye at least the, the painting. You know, here's a lion in the foreground laying down with a lamb next to him and all kinds of, there's a wolf in there and, and rabbits and I don't know what all. And human beings are there and they seem to be relating very well to one another. A visual depiction of the peaceable kingdom on earth. Well, here's an interesting behind-the-scenes story. There's a there's a uh, uh, display, a showing of Edward Hicks' paintings. It doesn't have all 62 of them, but it has them from every period along the way that he did them. And it turns out you can Google this if you want. Find out. I know what I'm talking about. Uh, The paintings changed through hicks 's lifetime, the first ones were very idyllic. you know the animals are really all warm and cozy, and they changed and by two thirds of the way through, they were noticeably different. The carnivores were larger, the wolf and the lion were larger, their fangs were visible they looked threatening. Some of the other animals looked. Like, I don't like this situation so much. Some of the people had their backs turned to one another. What was going on? The story comes out that Edward Hicks was very involved in the politics of his fellow Quakers. And they were fighting and infighting and bickering with one another. And Edward Hicks became very disillusioned about the possibility of human beings ever getting along and what it appears he did is display his growing dismay and test pessimism about worldly peace in his paintings the later ones said i don't really think this is possible humanity cannot produce the biblical ideal of real peace in its own powers it's incapable Only Christ offers deep peace that comes with the unshakable assurance that God is reconciled to us. Our sins are forgiven. Our hope is secure, not just the hope of heaven, but the hope that God will reconcile all things to himself in the end. Well, so a couple words about the blessing of supernatural peace. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, had a A short paragraph of comment summarizing this passage, and he's a wordsmith, and he said it so well, I can't improve. So let me quote Matthew Henry. He said, when Christ was leaving this world, he made his last will and testament. His soul he bequeathed to his father. His body he turned over to Joseph of Arimathea. His clothes were given to some gambling soldiers. The care of his mother was willed to the disciple John. But what would he leave his poor disciples? Matthew Henry said, not silver or gold. He had none. He left them what was the best of all, his peace. Now, let me show you, and I'm going to trace some more next week, how… Chapter 14 comes full circle and leads right into 15 but just let me remind you that John 14:1 was Jesus saying, "Let not your hearts be troubled." All the things that have been said that we've explored in chapter 14 really do link together because here he is in verse 27 saying, "Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, why? Because I've given you my peace. I've given you my Holy Spirit." I'm going to the Father's house to make a place for you. All these things linked to what he said in 14.1. And it led then the Apostle Paul to write this in Philippians 4. Instruction for Christians, instruction for us. Be anxious for nothing. Try that on for size. How does that fit you? Be anxious for nothing. I have a, a real concrete idea how that applies to me. How does it apply to you? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses understanding will mount a guard upon your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus. This doesn't say you will have untroubled circumstances the rest of your days. doesn't say anything of the kind. It says you will go into that circumstance of trouble, of being fired, of hearing the cancer verdict, of whatever, break up in your family, adult child rebelling against you. But you, Christian, can go into that whirlwind standing at the eye of the storm because God has forgiven your past, provided for your presence, present and guaranteed your future through what he did in Jesus Christ. This quickly as I close. Verse 30. You know, it's something I never noticed quite as much, but I really did this past week. Jesus now is kind of giving the departure. Okay, we're we're getting up and moving on, and they were going over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 30. He says, I'm not going to talk about this much more because the ruler of this world is coming. What did he mean there? The arrest, the soldiers, the kiss of Judas, all the pain that followed that. The ruler of this world is coming. But don't miss the next words of Jesus. He, the ruler of this world, has no claim on me. That's really the definition of biblical peace the ruler of this world has no claim on me because God, my Father, and Christ, His Son, have all claim on me and have put me in the hollow of His hand as we sang in that song a few minutes ago. Satan has no claim on me, Jesus said. Do you have a, a peace, anything like that? Is this peace yours because Christ is in you while you're in the midst of the chemotherapy? In the midst of the family warfare that seems like it anyway? In the midst of some tragedy you're walking through, in the midst of the grief that you have to face of loss of your spouse, do you have the peace that passes all understanding. You know, If I went to the bedside of a hospice patient or a hospital patient that I knew was mortally ill and and I said, don't worry, don't be afraid to die, I would be mocking that person unless I knew that they had the peace of Christ. Because if they don't have that, they ought to be terrified to die. Because they will have to give an account very shortly to one great holy God who may still regard them as his hostile enemy. But with Jesus Christ in a life, I can say it's not such a thing to die. Death has no claim on you, and I can give to that Christian believer the words of Isaiah 26, God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon his God because he trusts in his God. Father, I ask that this tremendous gift, we've only scratched the surface of what it's about, but there are people here that need it. People who have it and haven't even realized or called upon its resource, but there are others perhaps that don't know Christ. And I tremble for them. I tremble for them because you call them your enemy. My Father, I pray that the peace of Jesus, the peace of the cross, the peace that reconciles, the peace that justifies, the peace that signs a treaty would be found by everyone here. Take us forward in this with your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.